1: Welcome to episode 272 of Teach Better Talk Podcast. My name is Ray Hewart. And as always, I have the one, the only, Mr. Jeffrey Gargas is in the house. Jeff, you were out of town last week. We barely survived. I'm glad you're here. How are you? <laughs> well,
0: it's funny because you said I'm in the house. And I'm like, actually, I'm not in my house. And then you said I was out of town last week, and I'm like, oh, I'm out of town right now, too. So I'm actually not at my house. We can tell. I know, but the background is not as nice as yours. I'm in a hotel room because I'm traveling. So I was home for like a day and a half and then I left again.
1: To confirm though, you were on vacation with your beautiful family. Now you're on a trip because you're training with a school tomorrow with Chad.
0: Yeah, I traded in my beautiful family and my wife and kids for Chad. I mean... Not um, exactly an even trade, but
1: we all make choices <laughs> in life.
0: Yeah. So I'm I'm in a hotel room on a, on the road, Chad and I spend the next two days with a whole bunch of teachers from I think like six or seven different districts. So pretty pretty excited about that, you
2: know? I
1: feel like I feel like that's how we're sending that's how we're spending like all summer with all <laughs> these webinars going on. I'm like sitting in a room with educators from like seven or eight different different districts all talking shop, but you get to do it in person. And other people get to do it virtually. Which, Look at those options we're offering, right there, right there.
0: Yeah. Which so let's talk about that because you're doing that right now. You're literally in the middle of a four week, eight session webinar on the Grid Method right now. Um,
1: well, yeah. And
0: we, but like that's just the first of like 500 webinars we have going on webinar series that we have going on this this summer. So can we break down like?
1: Yeah, there's six.
0: There's uh, five hundred six whatever. Can we?
1: <laughs> well, but there's six open to the public. Like, there's a ton of webinars we're doing, but yes. six are like open to the public and not with the district specific.
0: Six yeah. that you, right now, listening, you can get into. Um, so, the one you're doing right now, exactly. obviously, that's already registration's already closed, you already started. Um, that's under grid method. But we've got another one on the grid method. It's another four week with eight sessions. That's being run by, by Chad Ostrowski. That starts on July 12th. But in the middle there, we also have you go right into another one on how to build the intro grid, which is a wildly requested training that we get all the time. It was okay, I, I, I got the grid method now. I love it, but how do I actually start this thing? And that is a two week, four session. Uh, break that one down for me. What does that one look like?
1: Well, it's really popular over the summer because educators are thinking about how to start their year off in August. And the reality is is that if you run a mastery classroom where students are able to take ownership over their learning, you can't just like walk in and have that expectation. We need to teach our students how to be learners, how to be explorers. And so our intro grid allows teachers to not only come in and discuss that concept, but also build their own introduction grid so that they're able to have that resource when they start the year off. It's essentially your first unit that you would be doing within the first few days of your classroom. So I really like it. And we're actually doing two of those. So depending on what you're interested in and depending on what your summer looks like, we have an introduction webinar, um, intro grid webinar going on at the beginning of July. It overlaps with Chad's webinar that is also on the grid method, which is that deep dive. It's our workshop. You're building a grid with the man himself who created the grid method. We also during that time have the weighing in to earn buy-in, which is an incredible webinar that Caitlin and Dave are doing. And that's about bringing new concepts into your community and trying to share your ideas and create and foster a solution seeking discussions when you're trying to introduce different ideas to your colleagues and to your administration. So it's a really valuable session that's going on in July. And then right as kind of those end, we're going into another wave early August. We have another Introduction Grid webinar going on that I'm excited to facilitate. And then Dave has his standard-based grading training that's happening early August that's going to give educators a lot to chew on as they set up their classroom to kick off the year.
0: So that seems like a lot, Ray. And so that's like, what, like 15 different websites I probably have to go to to find all this? Where's the best spot?
1: Okay, We'll make it easy. So I don't know if you guys like to explore, but if you want to make it easy, go to the homepage, teachbear.com. Literally scroll down. It's the first thing. You can click on every single webinar and you can find the dates and who's the facilitator and everything in between. If you want to explore further, you could go to teachbearcom slash professional development. That really has everything and anything, but... Uh, The homepage will get you what you need.
0: And the nice thing about all these webinars is that uh, every session is recorded and then stored in an online course that you then have lifetime access to as part of your registration as well. So if you miss a session or you want to go back and and listen through as you're going through the process again or or reflect on a piece or or need a refresher, whatever it might be, they're all recorded. So, um, So that's a nice little bonus.
1: Well, and they're not only recorded, but I really feel like this is important. They're recorded and they're uploaded within 24 hours. Yes. So if you're an educator in this webinar, you're not like missing sessions and then they're all uploaded at the end, similar to how we do some of our live series because we do do some of our social media posting that way. But for instance, today I did a webinar this morning with a group of educators. I had one educator that was missing because he was off on vacation. He emailed me today, not two hours later. Being like, oh, I already see that it's uploaded in the academy. Like, I can, I don't have to miss class. I can still see what we worked on. Yeah. So it's it's really convenient. I love that.
0: Yes. So go over to teachbetter.com. Get that. Get loaded up. Go see. Go hang out with Ray this summer. It's a good. It's a good call. Uh so let's talk about this episode. About,
1: and Chad well, and, and, Caitlin, and, and Dave and those other people too, but else. mainly Ray. Come on now.
0: Um, great episode here. Uh, Marshall Tuft is a. I'm not going to ramble through all the stuff that she has, but she's. I love how she breaks down what she refers herself as, but she's an engineer at heart. She's done a a, a lot of incredible work in the engineering space. She's so passionate about STEM and and the work and problem solving really became the theme of this episode. And I think you're really going to enjoy how Marsha thinks about problem solving, how she connected literally, I think literally every single answer back to this idea of solving problems and learning from that. So, Uh, Great episode. Ray, anything to add or should we just jump into it?
1: Let's get into it. Let's do it.
0: Episode 272 with Marsha Tuft. Hey, what's up, Teach Better family? It's Jeff. And I wanted to make sure that you were aware of all of the webinar series that we have going on this summer. Our summer webinars kick off with our first series, which is a four-week, eight-session series with Ray all about the grid method. Also, December, we have a grid method webinar series with Chad Ostrowski, the creator of the grid method. We also have two webinar series with Ray, all about building that introductory grid to get things rolling in your classroom. We've got Dave Schmidt and Caitlin Giordano talking about how you can get important conversations going in your school building or district with our Way In to Get Buy-In series happening in July. And then wrapping things up in August, we have our standards-based grading webinar with Dave Schmidt. Get all the details and register. Head over to teachbetter.com today. All right, we are here and we are chatting with Marsha Tuft. And Marsha, so awesome to have you on the podcast. Super excited to learn more about you and everything that you do. Before we dive too far into things, how are you feeling right now?
2: Um, pretty good. Having a lot of fun with some of my creative hobbies. And uh, um, butterfly season hasn't quite started yet, but I've been doing some problem-solving tests on my latest quilt projects and. Uh, working on a few more STEM projects for an upcoming book.
1: Oh, awesome. Marsha, I hope that we dive into all these hobbies you have because while I know you support educators in a multitude of ways, these other hobbies actually sound really cool too. So maybe you'll be able to fold those into some of our questions we have for you today. Before we get into all the nitty gritty questions, I'd love to talk about you for a minute. I know that um, we learned about you in the introduction that Jeff and I were able to do, but Will you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you describe what you do?
2: Well, I'm a professional engineer. Um, So I'm, I'm a retired engineer, but I've got over 35 years work experience at GE education and three degrees in engineering, bachelor's in mechanical engineering from Purdue University, master's in aerospace engineering from the University of Cincinnati, and a PhD in materials engineering from the University of Dayton. And one thing all engineers have in common is that we solve problems. And actually, one of the ways I managed to make it through my bachelor's in mechanical engineering was from all the hobbies I did as a kid. So I did a lot of sewing. I was interested in architecture. So my sister and I would design our dream house and you know, we'd lay it always had an Olympic swimming pool in it, but we'd lay out to scale, you know, kind of what the bedroom and the, the kitchen, you know, all the main rooms would be and the flow. So and we just had fun creating stuff. And when you have hobbies like that, you well, first of all, you fail. They don't all go right. Um, but you're motivated by things that interest you. So you figure out how to solve those problems. And when I got to sophomore year at Purdue University, I got my first D ever in physics, electricity and magnetism. And I was not a D student. But at that point, it's like I had to figure out, do I stay in engineering? Or do I quit and change majors? And, you know, I'm not a quitter by nature. But my world was rocked when I got that D and I had to figure out if I had what it took to continue in engineering. And what really was the deciding factor for me wasn't the awards that my high school physics project won, because that was one project. It was part of one year. It was all the creative stuff I'd done as a kid in elementary school and, and later that gave me the confidence to know that I was creative and I could figure things out. I figured I just had to learn a new medium. So that's kind of how I saw myself. And that's what gave me the courage to stay with it and persevere. Of course, then I still had to figure out, okay, I can't just keep doing the same things I always did. I had to figure out how to change so I could do better the next semester at school. And I I I sorted that out, I figured out that I had to take responsibility for my own learning. And I ended up switching into an independent study section of the next EE201 class, um, electricity and circuit analysis. And okay, so a lot of people didn't finish the independent study section of the course, (laughs) because they procrastinated too much. And I probably did. The last half of the class in the last third or last quarter of the semester, but I finished it, I aced it, and that success set me up for the next three mechanical engineering controls classes that built on that same background. So I guess, you know, one of the things I would describe myself as is a problem solver and somebody who, who knows how to learn and how to learn from solving problems. So, can you can you get into a little bit of your work that you've done with GE?
0: Like, what is how did you get into that, and what was, what was that actual work? What did you actually, what do you actually do with GE and and the education program there?
2: Okay, so I did. So for most of my thirty five years, probably twenty two years of that, I was in critical rotating parts life management. So, which was figuring out how things break, how to set how to predict when they would break and how to set safe operating limits for the critical rotating parts but um, part way through there um, so it's also i did my master's through the advanced course in engineering which is a series of in-course in-plant classes taught by univer- um, by industry experts at ge and fuller part-time uh, quarters at the university of cincinnati so You get your master's from a local university, but you're also learning, you're solving problems that are directly related to aircraft engines. Um, So I was an adjunct supervisor um, after I completed my master's through the advanced courses. And when the manager of technical education um, job came up, I applied for it and, and got it. So in my early 30s, I was managing, I did a three-year assignment managing GE's advanced course in engineering at the GE Aviation site in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I would come to that from an adjunct position where we just surveyed the students and they had lots of complaints about the instructors and the homeworks and, um, you know, basically Lots of problems with, you know, they weren't happy with the curriculum as it was. And shortly after starting, I had the opportunity to take an instructor development workshop uh, led by Glenn Markle and Ted Fowler from UC's Teachers College. It was a 32 hour workshop. Plus, then you had three or four teaching sessions where you were patched, you you were uh, paired with an educational. professional, who would sit in on a teaching session and then give you feedback about how you were doing, how you were applying what you'd learned. And that gave me the insight to understand that the problem with the advanced courses, the instructors saw the students as being problems. They weren't motivated. They weren't learning. The students saw the instructors as not knowing how to teach and boring and We're also getting to large class sizes of 50 to 60 students. And, you know, that kind of changes the dynamic of what's going on in the class. And what I learned, the insight I had was our instructors didn't have effective educational methods. Um, Once you get out of high school, you don't have to know how to teach to teach in college. You just have to be a technical content expert. And teachers learn so many things that helped them to be effective in the classroom. And our industry experts didn't have that. So one of my first tasks after leading, after taking the um, technical education role was persuading over half of our instructors to go through this instructor development curriculum. And the changes it made, it, it was night and day. I mean, before, they would basically be doing lecture dump methods, so you'd be in a four-hour class once a week writing notes until your hands cramped, and then you had a homework assignment that was a long, in-depth problem that took about on the order of 40 hours to solve. And you got to work in teams, and you are often out of your comfort zone, but the feedback from the students was, gee, there's a lot of work and not a lot of payoff, and the classes don't always set you up for success in being able to handle the homework. And what the instructors were able to do as a result of that training was engage the students more during the lectures. So there was more efficient um, information processing during the class and you actually felt like, okay, I've, I've learned something, I can retain it, I understand how to apply it to the problem. And then we'd come back and we'd do a recap of the homework the following week to kind of close the loop on that, that, that whole uh, situation. And, and along this process, I basically rediscovered my joy of learning. And then I went on to, after leaving that assignment. It was a tough decision for me whether to stay on the technical education side or go back into the engineering side. And um, I decided to go back to the engineering side, and I worked then on my started a PhD in materials engineering, concurrently with going back to my old um, department, which included the critical rotating parts life management.
0: Mm, that's a really cool journey. I really I love how you utilize the the conversations and the feedback from from the the students that were in there to help them take a look at and reflect on that program and and adjust and and, and improve it. So, And uh, I learned
2: so much from that assignment. It just, it really changed my life, getting insights into how people learn how to motivate them. And then some of the stuff I did since with training dogs, it's like, okay, it all ties in. And some of the cool dog training I've been able to do after that, um, clicker training wasn't a thing when I first started training dogs in like 1987. And in the early 90s, they, um, the local instructors weren't so great at teaching it. But around, I want to say 2008. Um, I got to attend a um Basically a week of seminars with Susan Garrett who's one of the top dog trainers in the world and a world agility champion. And her method is really it's a problem-solving cycle. So you you define the problem, you figure out what you want to teach the dog to do, the dog has a choice. And this is the thing that differentiated her from everybody else was this problem cycle that really step two is the dog has a choice. You set them up by framing a problem. Um, For the dog, it's how do I earn the treat? For the handler, it's like, okay, the problem we're going to solve today, I want to teach him how to weave backwards figure eights between my legs. Okay, you got to break it down into tiny, tiny steps because you can't teach that in one session. But the dog learns the clicker game, which is, okay, what's going to earn me a click, which means I get a treat. And they just start offering behaviors until you find something that you can reinforce that gets you a tiny, touch closer to your goal. They get a reward for that. That's the feedback that they're on the right track. And wrong is wonderful. So this is like me and my hobbies with sewing and other stuff. It's like, it's so much easier to learn to solve problems when you get immediate feedback. So in the dog training role, the facilitator is, is kind of setting the dog up for success, trying to keep them in the sweet spot for learning. Where it's challenging and they have to think through it, but it's easy enough that they can be successful and make positive progress. So when you set them up for this, eventually it's like weight training, you've got to increase the criteria, you know, so that they're actually learning something, they're figuring out how to get closer to this ultimate goal. But you're you're breaking it down to chunks where they can be successful and they're getting enough feedback, positive feedback, they're being successful enough at the time that they can keep going and keep learning and keep refining. And I love that that's just that's in a nutshell how I solve problems. When when it's my own hobby, then I'm close to the problem and it's like, okay, I know if I'm happy or not. I try something. Did this work? I have this goal with this, one of these quilts It's I'm doing this art deco poster from a Monaco Grand Prix from like 1935. And I've been interpreting the elements of the poster in fabric and thread. And so I've solved one bit of a problem at a time, how to transfer the detail to the fabric, how to, how to add the right amount of detail. And now I'm figuring out how I want to quilt it I was like, okay, I want I think I wanna use this new technique, ruler quilting, but I gotta learn this technique. So I gotta solve some similar problems on smaller projects where I can learn those skills and figure out, is this gonna do what I need it to do before I put it on this big, big project that I've spent tons of hours and years on actually. So
0: Marsha, I love you. I love, I love how everything goes back to, to to solving a problem, regardless of what you were talking about when you were talking about the, and the mm-hmm. education, piece into, into dog training, into the cult. And it, it really does go back to what you originally said, which is you're a problem solver. So mm-hmm. that gets me – I'm excited. I want to get into one of my favorite questions, which is around failure. So I'm excited to hear how you solve this problem and get through it. Um, but can you share a story, a time with us, in, in particular time, of a, a specific a failure a challenge that you had to overcome and kind of take us there with you? Tell us what happened. How did you solve that problem? How did you overcome it? And what did you pull away from that experience?
2: Well, I mentioned the the bachelor's in mechanical engineering where I got a D in physics. So, um, and I can talk about a different example if you want, but.
0: No, you go wh- wherever, wherever you want to take us. We're with you.
2: Okay. Well, so when I, well, I can do a parallel, maybe closer to some of your, um, um, some of your students was the the time I got a C in algebra in whatever seventh or eighth grade, and I was used to being good in math, and I couldn't get I couldn't get the word problems, and you know it's, you kind of put it off. It's like, well, it's not really a problem. I'm you know I'm getting through the test, and then you see that big C on the report card, and it's like um, I'm maybe a B student. I'm mostly an A student. And you're afraid to ask for help. And when I got that C, I finally had to admit to myself, it's like, okay, I'm not getting this on my own. Um, and it was scary for me. Um, I wasn't used to having to go to the teacher and ask for help. And I finally got up the courage to say, okay, I'm, you know, I need help. I'm not, I'm not getting this. And so i I went after school and I got help and and teachers are always so happy to help if you if you just ask. I don't know the single teacher that would turn a student away and say, "Nope, sorry, tough luck. Figure it out on your own." But for me, the hard part was admitting to myself that I needed help and then going and asking for it and it was it was the all the word problems that I guess they still use and, you know, where you got this paragraph and you have to read it and you got to figure out how to set it up and solve it. And, you know, I don't know if it took like a week where I had to go after school and I was working with the teacher until finally I started understanding and I started getting it. And once it clicked, it was a lot of fun. And that's the other thing I think kids don't really understand. Some, some, it's real common for to hear somebody say, "Well, if it were meant to me, if it were meant to be, it would be easy and, you know, I guess I'm just not cut out for it." And the truth is, we get bored by things that are too easy for us. And when you learn to do hard things, doing hard things becomes fun. And that's what solving the algebra word problems became to me. It's like once I got the hang of it, it was a ton of fun. And algebra really set me up for for engineering. I mean, a lot of the equations we use, you're manipulating variables on different sides of the equations. And if you can do simple math, 3 times 4 equals 2 times 6, you can do the numbers. All you're doing with algebra is you're substituting the numbers with variables that represent something else. And you learn to manipulate them. You can solve tons of problems. And so I, I have lots of fun with my quilting hobby. I figure out how much yardage I need. I can figure out how wide the fabric is, how many strips of fabric I need, what my design, I kind of lay out my design and I figure out how much, how much I need of each color. Um, I design things like portable emerging cases for butterflies that I raise. Um, I just have, I use algebra daily in my hobbies and it's, you know, it just becomes this this tool that's, you know, as natural to me as reading. And that's the power of math. And I think a lot of kids just don't understand how incredibly wonderful and powerful and magical math is. And, and they allow it to scare them. They don't get the help when they need to. And actually, um, I work with the Greater Cincinnati STEM Collaborative. And they surveyed students from Walnut Hills High School, which is like a college prep high school. And they were trying to start off this conversation about, well, do you see, do you, do you see yourself in a STEM career? And, and these kids, all of them in this group said no. And that was like a non-starter. They were thinking, what's going on here? I thought this was going to be an easy softball question just to get the conversation going. And it turned out those kids just didn't have math, didn't have confidence in their own math skills. So math is just incredibly important.
1: Yeah, Marsha, I couldn't agree more. As an educator with a math background, I, I couldn't agree more that the, that the better we can support our students feeling confident in all the content that they're learning, math specifically, but truly any area that educators are able to work within to facilitate and foster deep thinking, we want our mm-hmm. students to, to see success. And you did a great job earlier in, in an answer that you were sharing, focused on finding the balance between it being challenging, but also feeling success so that you can keep learning. And I hope that was such yeah. a, a wonderful area to remind all educators about of, you know, it doesn't need to be easy and it can't be too difficult. You got to find that sweet spot.
2: So it, when it right. comes
1: to the work you're doing and your continued focus, like continued, I thought this was so cool. And all your answers thus far, this awesome focus of problem solving, which is truly something that I see in classrooms, but I don't get to see it enough. And I think it's beautiful that you've put so much of a focus on not only supporting teachers in this area, but getting that type of activity, those types of learning opportunities in our students' hands. Can you tell me a piece of advice that you would want to give to teachers? I know it's tricky to just to pick one. I know it's almost an impossible question to ask, But if you had to pick one piece of advice that you want all of our listeners to really consider, what would be your suggestion?
2: I think in this case, it would be focus on the progress. So um, not just grading, you know, the outcome, you know, so the destination, did they solve the problem, but... What about the effort putting in? How are, are they learning? Are they starting to understand? Because the thing is, when I think about problem solving um, and, and Girl Scouts have asked me, I've been trying to help them with their think like an engineer badges. And a lot of leaders um, don't feel comfortable leading the, the, the badges because they're solving some complex problems. And they don't want to set the girls up for success. And I think with a problem solving approach, that it's more important to figure out how you can help lift the students self-image of themselves to recognize, hey, you put a lot of effort in this and you learned something. So focus on the journey and the learning process and not so much, you know, did they build the perfect project? but what did they learn? Not necessarily, was it, you know, a competitive A or B, you know, because everybody's at a little bit different level. And sometimes it's, it's hard to deliver grades and evaluate everybody on the same playing field, but to try to inspire and, reinforce those problem-solving achievements in each student, regardless of how polished their final um, effort was, and to help lift them up and get them to recognize that, hey, they may not have ended up where they thought they were going to go, but they learned something pretty amazing along the way. And the more that they solve problems, the better they're going to become at it.
0: I love that. I love the focus on the journey, the learning, what did they actually grow and learn, and then the, how you can kind of wrap it up with uh, and are they learning that problem solving is going to help them and continue to help them learn and grow. Um, loving it. Let's. Let, we're going to keep it going here. We're going we're to kind of put you to the test here. So the next six questions, Marsh, I'm going to throw these at you. Your goal is to answer each one of them in less than 15 seconds. Are you ready for this? Sure. All right. What is one tech tool that you cannot live without?
2: Okay, so my, my background is engineering and not teaching, but I guess if I had to name one, I'd say Zoom because I, I use that for a lot of video communications and for, for recording some of the videos that I um, do on my website.
0: What's a, a good book you're reading right now?
2: I've been enjoying Trials of Apollo by Rick Riordan. I mean, it's just a fun book, and I love the character growth that Apollo goes through. Um, And another is Talent is Overrated by Jeff Colvin. Uh, Who do we need to follow on Twitter or Instagram today? Well, Chris Woods is amazing. He's got a website, uh, dailystem.com, and he hosts the STEM Everyday podcast, and he's one of the most active. Um, people on Twitter that I know, and he's got such a passion for bringing STEM into the classroom in a practical way.
0: What's a good YouTube channel, website or podcast that educators should check out?
2: Well, I love solve it for kids podcast because the topics are really focused on kids and they've got a fun challenge with each podcast so that if if you've got a kid uh you want to expose them to more stem content um it's really kid focused um and then chris woods another one of my favorites his is really more geared towards adults so those are two great podcasts that are favorites
0: uh give us a daily weekly or monthly routine every teacher should get into
2: um I would say find ways to show the relevance of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math in real life. Uh, one of the things I learned from the technical education role is that motivation is closely linked to success in learning. The relationship goes both ways. So teachers who plan successful experiences for their students were also able to build motivation and that motivation has two dimensions perceived value or relevance and expectation for success. So if you want to build the motivation students to become successful, then show them the relevance of what they're learning and, um, you know, and help them succeed, you know, structure it to help them become successful with it.
0: I love it. And what is the best piece of advice you've ever received?
2: I'd have to say it's um some feedback I got while a summer engineer working at Procter and Gamble, and it was about receiving feedback and understanding others' points of view um that there's no single reality, and that so so p and g had one of the most balanced performance appraisal processes I've ever seen so for everybody from the you know the summer engineer to the plant manager um they would List three relative strengths and three relative weaknesses. And you can usually maximize your potential to focus on your relative weaknesses rather than making your strengths stronger. But one of my weaknesses in that performance review was um, a presentation I gave to the plant manager where I was presenting the results of my project and I was perceived as defensive. That wasn't how I felt. I felt excited, prepared. I was eager to jump in on the questions. Um, I think I actually was cutting some of the questions off. That's how eager I was to answer. And my manager had to catch me in the act as I was responding to his comments in the performance appraisal. Marcia, you're doing it now before I understood, oh, this is the behavior. I'm feeling excited and motivated and eager. And it was being perceived as defensive. That that was when the light bulb really came on that I understood, oh, you know, things that I do can be totally misconstrued or, or come across in a totally different way. And it's hard to ask for feedback. Um, and sometimes it's hard to listen to the feedback. But that's where you get the greatest growth is asking, you know, being open to feedback, processing it, um, and then taking action on it. And it can make a huge difference in your world. You can learn so much.
1: Great piece of advice, Marsha. I have loved hearing all these answers so focused on being good problem solvers and really doing what we need to do to support students in And in areas of feeling success, I I found that theme so consistent. I think that it's something that will resonate with all of our listeners. And I really want to make sure that they stay connected to you. I know that you have a website and a Twitter handle and a YouTube channel and a few books. Would you mind sharing the places that we can stay connected to you? And then obviously, these resources will also be in the show notes for our listeners to go and engage with.
2: Sure. My my website is putneydesigns.com. And on it, there's a STEM menu where I've got a lot of my STEM projects. On the About page, you'll find more information about how to connect where my YouTube channel is. Um, under the Books menu, you'll see information about my three books. It's a uh, Putney and the Magic iPad series. It's got a theme theme, science, technology, engineering, art, and math. And she just, she solves a lot of problems and she's got a magical mentor in the form of a magic iPad that kind of helps her sort through her journey. Um, you can also get me on, I'm on Instagram under MK Tuft Twitter. I'm not real active on Twitter, but it's, uh, Marsha Tuft is the the one I use most. My Facebook author page is MK Tuft. So those are, and, and I have a, um, newsletter, uh, you can subscribe to on my website and I, you can also, if you scroll down to the bottom of any page, there's a contact us um, area where you can put in your, your name and email address and a message, and that comes to me and I read every email. So if you've got any suggestions for projects or things that you would like to see, I would love to hear from you.
0: I love it. And you know, you can find all the links and all the resources and everything we mentioned in this episode over at TeachBetter.com as well as the really important links for connecting with Marshall and keeping this conversation going. So make sure you head over to teachbetter.com for all of that. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And if you can give us a rating and a review, we'd really appreciate that as well. Let's keep taking this one step further. Think with just three of your colleagues who need to hear these amazing stories and connect with these amazing people and just share this podcast with them. Marsha, thank you so much for coming on. I just, I love hearing your story and the way you think about things and the passion you have for everything you do and what you're trying to share with people. And just really appreciate you taking some time and, and sharing your story and your passion with us. Thank you.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed being on your podcast.
0: Until next time, let's get out there and let's teach better.